Good morning, River Oaks. My name is Art Cash. I'm discipleship pastor here at the church, and I'm excited to be with you this morning in Acts 22, the end of that chapter, and through Acts 23, verse 11. So today, there are about 145 million people in Russia. Only 76,000 of them are Baptists. Under the Soviet regime in the 1960s, that number was far lower, as you might imagine. So in a 2019 interview, Yuri Sipko shared stories of how his mother and his father planted the seeds of courage in him, even as a young boy. Yuri said, my father was the pastor of our congregation. All sorts of pressure was put on him. When I was a child, all I knew is that I wanted to be like my dad. I saw that he was able to stand alone with dignity and courage against all of his enemies. Well, the Soviets eventually put Yuri's dad in jail for preaching. Soon after this imprisonment, one of Yuri's teachers called his mother into the local school for a meeting. The teacher demanded to know why Yuri would not submit to state-mandated lessons of atheism and materialism. Yuri watched his mom pull out her Bible and start reading it right there during the meeting. He said that action made him so happy. And feeling under her protection, he found the courage to tell his teacher that he believed in God. So I realize that there's, there's two kinds of people here this morning. Those that are under pressure and those who eventually will be. And specifically pressures related to living as a Christian. We, we'd like to think that, that being a Christian means that life is easier somehow. But we, we know that history and scripture tells us a different story. For the believer, suffering will come, and the expectation for how we handle it is extremely high. I mean, we're, we're to glorify God in our suffering, we're to count it all joy when we meet various trials. That's pressure. For some of you, pressure is just a way of life. For others, you feel little to no pressure. Now, if you're a young person, you're not feeling pressure this morning, fantastic. Pray for your parents. They are. Okay? But for, for the rest of us who don't feel pressure, I, I would ask, is it possible that you've given in to a level of compromise for the sake of comfort? Are you underestimating the constant pressure of spiritual attack from enemies who hate your faith and despise your Savior. Regardless, when, when pressure comes, it exposes us. We know this is true. Think about just driving down the road in traffic. You're exposed under pressure. It shows what is in our hearts and our character. Spurgeon put it this way, Trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we're made of. Well, this morning in our text, we're about to see what Paul is made of. Paul is hard-pressed on every side, from the tribune to the council, even his own internal pressure to, to share the gospel with his fellow people. So as we read our passage, let's, let's learn from Paul. How does he respond to the pressure? How is he strengthened and encouraged? To answer these questions will help us answer our main idea or our main question this morning. 
when we are under pressure, how should we respond? That's our main idea. When we're under pressure, how should we respond? So let's see from the text here. We'll pick up in 2229 so we can see what's going on with Paul and the tribune. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, talking about Paul, immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Bless our time in in worship. Help us to see those of us right now who feel immense pressure, who feel the slightest pressure, help us to come away from this text resting in the security of Jesus Christ, resting in his work and his resurrection. We pray this in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So again, our, our main idea, when we're under pressure, how should we respond? We're gonna answer this question by following Paul through the text. We're going we're gonna to see that we should respond to pressure in good conscience, convicted by the Spirit, and encouraged by the presence of Jesus Christ. Good conscience, convicted by the Spirit, and encouraged by the presence of Jesus Christ. So we need to kind of orient ourselves in this passage. Okay, A lot has been going on with Paul since he showed up in, in Jerusalem. Okay? We need to see the, the players in this particular uh, account. It's important because he spent the last chapter defending himself. He'll spend the next few chapters defending himself, defending the gospel to various groups of people. So it's good to get our bearings on, on who Paul is speaking to. And you'll see here, you got the Roman Tribune, okay? That's the, that's the first one we need to know. 
His name is Claudius Lysias, and he's in charge of up to a thousand Roman troops. Also in this passage, Paul is testifying before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. They are made up of the, the liberal Sadducees and the conservative Pharisees. Ruling over this council is Ananias, the, the high priest. This is not the same Ananias that helped Paul after his conversion. This is a corrupt and malicious ruler. The historian Josephus describes Ananias, Ananias as greedy and violent. He was eventually assassinated by a Jewish zealot for being too pro-Roman. And finally, we have Paul the Apostle. He's both a Jew and a Roman. He's a former terrorist to the church who was radically converted by Christ on the road to Damascus. So again, how does the tribune kick this off? How do we get into this, this trial? Again, look at, look at 2230. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now the tribune, he, obviously afraid because Paul is a Roman citizen, but he also wants to know the truth about why the Jews were trying to kill Paul. And we, we know this truth, that any time a political leader is actually interested in truth and pursues it, that's to be commended. So how do we get then to, to conscience in, in, in 1 and 2? Let's see what happens here in 23, 1 and 2. The tribune is ordering the Jewish council to convene to get to the bottom of these riots that are centered on Paul. And Paul leads out like this in verse one. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience. Up to this day, there is an immediate response. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul's words are likely the beginning of a speech, the beginning of a defense and we need to know what Paul means when he refers to his conscience. And what do you think of when you hear that? Perhaps guilty conscience, certainly not a good conscience. But the emphasis here is on not our internal moral compass. We'll get to that next with conviction. Paul knows that he's not blameless regarding his, his sin. He's just recounted how he stood over the garments of the people who were executing Stephen, he talks in present tense about how he's the chief of sinners. This isn't an internal moral conscience. This is more like the term for good citizen or a way of living. We find this idea in Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's conscience is clear before God and how he's lived his life before others. Think of the providence of God and how he can even say this. You may remember Mitchell and I kind of wrestling through Acts 21 and Paul coming to the temple, ready to do this, this blood sacrifice, almost compromising the gospel. But he doesn't because God intervenes through a riot and rescues him out of that. So the fact that, that Paul is being accused of being against the law, against the temple, against the people, he can actually stand here and say, I have a good conscience in front of all of you because I was in the temple under Nazarite vow with fellow Jews about to go along with customs and laws of your people. 
So God's providence in using his near compromise so he can stand there and say and continue to say in future trials, have a good conscience before God in how I've lived my life. God can use our near compromises. He can use our complete mess ups. He can use the worst things that we do to still teach us about his glory and his goodness. We're seeing that lived out with Paul. So then why does, why does Ananias order Paul to be struck then? Was Paul's claim of a good conscience and, and conduct taken as an accusation of, of guilt and misconduct by Ananias? Maybe it's just that Ananias was wicked. I mean, his, his order for Paul to be struck is certainly in line with his character. He wants to silence this man. So I, I want us to see the contrast between Ananias and Paul in both conscience and conduct and, and see how it applies to us. Now, most of the time in, in, in the hero story, we're, we're going to align ourselves with the, the humble hero. Okay, we heard it this morning from, from Kent. We're, we're, of course, Jedi, not Sith. Okay, we're aligning ourselves with the humble hero. You know, we, the origin story, we, we learn humility. Eventually, we're rescuing people in distress, even getting the cat out of the tree. That's, that's who we identify with, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's what's always happening in, in our hearts. So I, I saw a hoodie online the other day. I'm going somewhere with this, okay? I saw a hoodie on, online the other day that said, my problem is I just want to follow Jesus and slap people too. <sighs> Maybe you can feel this with me, okay? There, there's just... Times and places and, 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 and people where, man, I really love you, Jesus, and I want to slap people too. It's humorous, but it's, it's revealing for us. Now, I, I don't mean this for this to be like preacher man railing at random picture he found online. That's not it. Okay, I'm not railing about what's out there. Instagram obviously knows that I like hoodies. They're like, here, do you like this one? It's, it's not that. I want the Spirit to interrogate us regarding the level of anger and cynicism in our hearts as Christians. Interrogate me. <laughs> Especially those that we disagree with morally or politically. Brothers and sisters, no one is converted to Christ through our outrage. Yes, we are to give an answer for the hope that we have within us but we are to do so with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter three fifteen. This may be one of the biggest challenges that we face currently as Christians because of our culture that just rewards outrage and anger and cynicism. May that not be said of us. What an opportunity that God gives us. So, so see what's happening here with Ananias. He, he views Paul as completely beneath him a waste of his time. He, he didn't order Paul to be punched in the stomach, but to be struck on the mouth. The strike on the mouth is meant to silence this inconvenient and annoying little man. This action reeks of self-righteousness. And when any amount of pressure shows up in our lives, the fuse to silence or dismiss even those very close to us just gets shorter So when we consider our conscience before God and our conduct before people all change 
starts in the heart. So we ask the Spirit to cultivate humility and gentleness in us towards others. Frankly, honestly, ask the Spirit to help you see yourself rightly. You are no better or worse than the fellow image bearer that you wish would just shut his mouth. So ask the Spirit to help your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we're not the only ones who need help from the Spirit, as we will see with Paul when he struck. So look back, 23, 2, and 3. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? What's happening here? And Paul is bringing the thunders what happens. Here's, here's the Paul who let Elymas the magician have it back in Acts 13. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Here's the Paul of Galatians 5.12. I wish those who trouble you would emasculate themselves. In other words, here's the Paul I can get behind. Here's the Paul who would be wearing the hoodie. I love Jesus, but I want to slap people too. He's absolutely right, and he's saying so. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Paul's words choice is not random. I mean, you or I get hit in the mouth, and we might angry cry in that situation and sort of mutter something and then just overanalyze it later, saying, man, I wish I'd said something clever. But that's, that's not Paul. Paul brings precise biblical heat with his response. When he says God will strike you, he's referencing Deuteronomy 28 where God promises to strike his people if they violate his covenant. With the whitewashed wall, Paul's referencing Ezekiel 13 when the Lord promised to destroy false prophets who cried peace as the people of God were rotting away in their rebellion. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. Ezekiel 13, 14 and 15. Paul's not just angry, he's right and he's angry. He correctly calls out the court for having the audacity to judge him according to the law, yet acting contrary to that same law by having him struck uncondemned. He likely is thinking of Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. So what if we could just stop right here? That's right, Paul. Get these fools. They're wrong. You're right. Bring the hammer, Paul. But that's not the end of the account. Every single one of us knows that you can be absolutely right in what you say, but completely wrong in the way you say it. That's the hoodie that I need. Paul is under enormous pressure here. He's human and he reacts like one. One hint that from Luke to help us see that this may not have been the right response is, is Luke means for us to compare Paul in front of the council and being struck with Jesus in front of the council when he struck. When Jesus is, is struck, 
in front of the council, he reacts with, with a calm and reasonable question. When Paul is struck, he reacts with a prophetic curse, with wrath. There's a difference there. If there was any doubt about Paul's response being wrong, it's removed by what Paul says next. Let's look at four and five. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there's a few ideas, a few theories as to why Paul didn't recognize Ananias as the high priest. It's been a long time. It's been over 20 years. Could be the lighting in the room. Could be the time of day. I think the most plausible is that likely Paul had poor eyesight. We read in Galatians, he says, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, that's an odd thing to say unless you were in need of better eyes. And at the end of Galatians 6, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Possibly another clue as to poor eyesight. Regardless, Paul did not know that it was a high priest he was speaking to until he was told. So what do you think about Paul's response, though, to this revelation? Is this, is this fear of man? Is this, you know, I'm backtracking. I realize I, I have just overstepped what I should. Is, it, is this cowardice? I don't think so. Paul knew the risk before he spoke. The only thing that's changed is that someone spoke the law and Paul is convicted by it. This is conviction and repentance. Here's a man who in a matter of seconds goes from righteous wrath to respectful repentance. Brothers and sisters, how is this abrupt 180 even possible? Only by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that you can be completely right, justifiably angry, physically hurting, humiliated, be under this amount of pressure and still respond with humble repentance. There's no other explanation other than the Holy Spirit. Do you see the kindness and patience of Christ as he's growing Paul's humility? The same law that Paul correctly uses to hold this council accountable, it pierces him to the heart when he hears it. He heard their words about how he spoke to the high priest and he quotes Exodus twenty two twenty eight. you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. It is by this conviction from the Holy Spirit that his conscience and conduct before God and man is vindicated. Paul is vindicated here. He's not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But a good conscience does not mean perfection it means acting with integrity when you do sin by responding quickly to conviction from the Holy Spirit and acting on it. That's a conscience. That's responding to conviction. This whole situation is so instructive for us. I mean, are, are we more like Ananias who, who uses Scripture as long as it's convenient but fails to submit when corrected by it? Or are we maturing in Christ like Paul when we hear the truth of the law? By the Spirit, are we convicted by it and submit to it? You have to submit to Scripture in order to be changed by it. 
You can know where you are by considering your own use of the Bible. Do you more often look to the word to condemn the behavior of others? Or do you go to the word expecting to be personally changed by it, personally challenged and corrected and rebuked and reproved and taught by it? What's your approach to God's word? The difference is huge. The difference is between self-righteousness on the one hand and holiness on the other. It matters how we approach scripture. Do we submit to it or do we use it as a battering ram? One way you know that you're growing in Christ is that you blow it less often. But another way is by responding rightly when you do blow it. Specifically, how do you respond when the Spirit convicts you of sin? Do you ignore the conviction and act as a law unto yourself? Or do you submit to the freedom that you have in Christ to own your sin, to confess it and repent of it? That, that takes courage. You, you are free to own your sin, brothers and sisters. If you are a believer, you're free to own your sin because you're not defined by it. You're not defined by it. So you can freely say, I did this. It was horrible. It was wrong. I own it. Please forgive me. You can say that because you're not defined by that. You're defined by Christ. The freedom that you have in him takes courage to confess and repent of sin. So let's turn back to our text. Is there, is there courage in what Paul does next? Let's look at, at verses 6 through 9. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. But the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. And how do you read that part of the text? Specifically, when, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. Is this, is this Paul just being opportunistic? Maybe he saw a chance to divide the council and turn it against itself. I mean, we see immediately that his, his claims about the hope and the resurrection bring disagreement, dissension, clamor in the council. I don't think Paul's primary motive was to divide the council, but to reach some on the council with truth. I base that on who he addresses and what he says. Paul wisely makes his appeal to the Pharisees. Why? Because his claims about the resurrection would make the most sense to that group. We know that, that Paul is adept at reading his audience and then appealing to them in a way that they can understand. We saw this back in Acts 17 when Paul is appealing to the Athenians. He's, he uses their, their poets, their philosophers to appeal to them. But it's with the exact same point in mind. Acts 17, 18, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Same truth, but with a different approach in order to reach his audience. That's instructive for us. And we might think that, that sharing the gospel should always start at the beginning with the creation and, and the fall. 
But Paul reads his audience and starts towards the end of the story with the resurrection, with hope. Both he and the Pharisees have hope in the resurrection. That's where he starts. So who is it that you know that could be the most open to hearing about the hope that you have in Jesus? Kids, okay, just for a minute, let's, let's, let's work smart, not, not hard here, okay? I, my encouragement to you would not be to walk up to the biggest militant atheist in the lunchroom and start talking to him about Jesus, okay? I would encourage you rather to perhaps start with a girl at the lunch table who is spiritual but not religious. At least maybe she's open to where you might be going with Jesus. Now, there's still hope for the militant atheist. I'm just encouraging you where to start, okay? Taking our marching orders here from, from Paul. The most important question you can ask when you're trying to reach someone with the gospel is this. What facet of the gospel do they most need to hear? Paul here started with the resurrection, not with the law. Make the argument that actually him starting with the law and Ananias didn't go so well. He started with the resurrection here. Consider how you could appeal to an unbeliever in your life in a way that could be understood. Now look at what Paul says in, in verse 6. The hope and the resurrection of the dead. It's connected. Those two things are connected for Paul and the Pharisees because they both find their fulfillment in Christ. This is where Paul was going with his testimony before clamor and chaos broke out around him again. According to verse 6, Paul believes the whole reason he's on trial is due to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Why is this concept so crucial to Paul? Well, I know for me, most of the time, my hope in Christ is tied up to what he has done for me and saving me, what he's, what he's currently doing for me and sanctifying me. I'm asking him to help me be patient and gentle and kind and help me be a better husband, a better dad, a better pastor. And being saved and sanctified, those are amazing gifts. But, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, the following, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This means that our hope in Christ is not just salvation. It's not just sanctification. It's also eternity. It's glorification. All of that tied to Jesus Christ's resurrection. Why, why does Jesus' resurrection give us this type of far-reaching, all-encompassing hope? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not just defeated death. He's destroyed it according to 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has not just destroyed death. He's destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. He didn't stop there. He also delivered those who were enslaved to the fear of death, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Now, the older I get, the better news that that is to me. The more things begin to break down, the more realistic death seems. This matters to me. What would a life look like that is free from the fear of death? I think it looks like joy. I think it looks like excitement to tell others this good news. All tied to the resurrection. Jesus' physical resurrection secures our physical resurrection. Now, growing up, I confess that I was much more influenced by Farside comics 
than I was by the Bible in what I thought happened after we die, heaven and hell. Okay, far, according to Farside, if you show up in Hades, they give you an accordion. If you show up in heaven, you're on a cloud with a halo and a harp. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is just this cloud thing. You show up at the pearly gates and Peter lets you in or not. Yet scripture tells us a different story, a much better story. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. The hope that we have in the resurrection means that when believers are raised from the dead, when that trumpet sounds, we won't be these floaty, misty ghost things. We will be more real than we've ever been. That's our hope. What was perishable will be raised as imperishable. What was dishonorable will be raised in glory. What was weak will be raised in power. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43. This hope alone is why everyone should at least want Christianity to be true. What an awesome end to the story that really is just the first chapter of forever. What glorious promises and hope secured by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is this future hope that allows Paul to have courage even while under enormous pressure from the council. Paul connects future hope to present courage at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. After exulting in all of this wonderful truth and glorious promises about the resurrection, he ends chapter 15 tying all of that truth to here and now. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's dispense with the idea that being so heavenly minded is of no earthly good. Paul says, no, the fact that you're thinking about your future hope in the resurrection means that everything you do right now matters. All of it, none of it is in vain. That is awesome. So Paul would have no doubt continued to make his case for the hope of the resurrection. But the tribune once again has to rescue him from violence. Look at verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So after all of this, after basically... His third rescue by the tribune. What do you think was going through Paul's mind? What, do you, what would be going through your mind if you were in Paul's shoes? I mean, this looks like a total failure. Paul gets a few words out about hope, about resurrection. Someone's threatening to, to flog him. Somebody's striking him. Somebody's trying to tear him to pieces. Not only that, Paul is completely alone. Remember where he is. He's, he's in Jerusalem. Where's James? Where's the Jerusalem church? Where is Gentile friends? If you flip over to 2 Timothy 4.16, we know exactly how Paul was, was processing what he was going through. We'll find out who came to strengthen him. 2 Timothy 4.16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. How did the Lord strengthen him? Through his presence. Verse 11, the Lord stood by him. The irony that just the day before the Pharisees are saying, well, maybe an angel did talk to Paul. Maybe it was a spirit. We we can do them one better. The physically resurrected person of Jesus Christ appeared to Paul to stand by him and say, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So regardless of, of what Paul thinks, do you see what Jesus thinks about what Paul has done? Jesus didn't say, okay, Paul, you know, since you did a mediocre job in Jerusalem, I guess we'll give Rome a shot. It can't get any worse. No, no, Jesus, Jesus views what Paul did as testifying to the facts about him. Paul did what Jesus sent him to do. Brothers and sisters, who knows the number of things that we try to do to honor the Lord that we walk away from going, man, what a ridiculous failure. But he sees it as us successfully trying to honor him. May God give us eyes to see. And then Jesus doesn't tell Paul, good job, you can relax. No, he says, what you've done here, you are also going to do in Rome, you must testify. So that word means to witness. This is not about Paul, ultimately, this is about Jesus keeping his word, keeping his promises all the way back in Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. Paul is going to Rome, and he's going to be a witness for Jesus. He appears to Paul and says, take courage. Essentially saying, keep going, keep witnessing. I am with you. I am united to you. Despite the pressures that will come, This moment strengthens Paul for the rest of his life and gives him the courage and the strength to continue spreading the gospel. And what about you? What about you? Perhaps you can identify with Paul. You feel abandoned and alone. I'm convinced that some of our greatest acts of courage happen when we are alone. It is when we are alone that our integrity is tested and our faith is refined. For my single brothers and sisters, it takes courage to choose to honor God when sexual immorality is a swipe away and you live in a culture that constantly says you are a fool for not just going and pursuing pleasure. A culture that constantly pressures you to compromise. A world that makes you feel like an outcast because of your abstinence and pursuit of purity. So abstinence and and purity, words that may have fallen out of favor even in the church, but not with your Lord. Jesus sees you pursuing holiness and says, take courage, I am with you. For those in sorrow, Jesus says, be strong, I am with you. For those afraid, Jesus says, do not fear, I am with you. 
for those betrayed. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. For those doubting, Jesus says, keep trusting me. I am with you. For those weary, Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. I am with you. The reality for us as believers is that we are never alone. Jesus is with us. We are as united to Christ as Paul is through the presence of the Holy Spirit who was promised to us by a good father and secured by the work of his son, namely through his death and resurrection, that spirit who has sealed us to the father and son constantly testifies to us of that truth. You belong to Jesus. United to Christ, you are like a paperclip welded to an I-beam. That can't be undone. You are in him. He is in you. His Holy Spirit will encourage you and strengthen you to be his witness no matter what pressures come. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So at the end of the day, at the end of all of our days, we can say with Paul, even though we are hard-pressed, we are not crushed. Even though we are perplexed, we're not driven to despair. Even though we may be persecuted, we're not forsaken. Even though we're struck on the mouth or struck down, we are not destroyed. Why? Because we have this treasure. Our union in Christ it's in these jars of clay, we're told. Why is that? I think that that treasure of our union to Christ is in these jars of clay for the glory of God. May it be to his glory that the light of Jesus shines out through all the pressure, all the chips, all the cracks, all the wear and tear, as his light shines through you, it will testify that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God, to his glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, we, we thank you that you came and you absorbed our sin, you absorbed your father's righteous wrath. You absorbed all possible pressure. Jesus, we thank you for your death and your resurrection that allows us to have hope in our own resurrection. Father, again, we thank you for this glorious plan. Spirit, we pray that you would seal this truth into our hearts. Continue, please, Holy Spirit, to testify to us of the love of Christ, that we can't comprehend the height and the breadth and the width and the depth of it. You strengthen us in our inner being, Holy Spirit, to believe what's true. Please help us. Help us to know it and believe it and be changed by it. Help us to rest in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.